I took my daughters uh, to see uh, the third movie in the Twilight series, Eclipse, on opening day. And I thought that was pretty cool until uh, one of my friends said, bro, you just lost your man card, you know. And uh, Rich, though, he tried to encourage me. He said, no, you didn't lose your man card then. You lost it a few years ago. (laughs) You know, I mean, you can't win for losing, but that's the way it is. If you haven't seen Eclipse, it's the uh, latest in the Twilight series, which is sort of the tween vampire thing. Now, I don't quite understand why... Uh, the vampires in that movie uh, twinkle in the sunlight as opposed to like disappearing in the mirror and and, and that sort of thing. But that's the way that it works. It is the hottest movie out right now for the tweens. And uh, I took my daughters to see it. And um, at the end of it, I I felt like I had to find some other guy in the audience, you know, and there were like three of them. And, uh, you know, that was the way it was. So when I was growing up, um, I didn't, you know, my family didn't go to church. And I think I may have shared this with, with uh, you guys before. My, my dad was from a Lutheran background. My mom is from a Jewish background. And we had uh, maybe what you'd call religious detente in our family. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't go to church. We didn't go to synagogue. We didn't really do anything like that. In terms of traditional Judeo-Christian spirituality, but if you go into the broader you know, spiritual traditions, we actually did uh, transcendental meditation. If you're from the child of the 60s and the 70s, you've heard of that. We did that you know, in our family and uh, astrology and you know, all sorts of stuff like that. So it, was, well, it wasn't really a traditional religious background. Uh, there was some spirituality. But all of my friends, I grew up in, uh, in Connecticut, and all of my friends uh, went to church pretty much every week. And they practically never invited me to go with them. And I would have gone, you know, if they had invited me because I was curious. And I know, I didn't know what it was like in in church, but they never really invited me to go with them except for one guy. And I'm not sure it was really an invitation. It was more of a, you're stuck with it thing because we were hanging out and, and, you know, we used to sleep over at each other's houses. And if we would sleep over at his house on a Saturday night, he said, part of the deal is you got to go with me and my family to church on Sunday morning. I thought, okay, no big deal. You know, and it was kind of interesting for me. But I never really understood why they didn't invite me uh, to go to church with them. And so I was talking with one of my friends, trying to understand what, what his church was like and, and such. And he, uh, he, we were probably about 12 or 13 at the time. And he started telling me about confirmation, which was apparently a pretty big deal. And again, I know what it is now, but back then I really didn't have a clue what it was. And so I asked him, so what's all this confirmation thing about? And he said, well, it means you got to go to school after school, you know, three days a week and learn all this stuff. And at the end of like six months or six years or however long it takes, you got to take this test, you know. And if you pass the test, then it's pretty cool because you're considered by the church to be an adult and you get to make your own decisions, and so I said, okay, like, what kind of decisions do you get to make now that you, you know, once you're confirmed? And he said, well, first decision I'm going to make is I'm not going to church anymore. <laughs> and I said to myself, what is wrong with this picture here? You know, and, and that's the way it was. And as I look back on it now, I realize what was going on is from the perspective of my friends, church was irrelevant to them. You know, they didn't like it. It didn't deal with the issues that they were dealing with. It was boring. I mean, I don't really know because I never went to their churches, but that's what I figured was going on. And if they didn't like it, then why did they want, you know, they wouldn't invite me to go with them. And that's not the way a church is supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be something that's interesting, something that's exciting, that deals with the issues that, 
that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And contrast the experience that I had as a kid with my friends with uh, conversations that I've had with numbers of you in, in, in the church here at Renaissance. Remember, I was talking to uh, one person who was pretty new to Renaissance, and they were saying to me, I'm just excited to get up on Sunday mornings and, and come to church. You know, I grew up in a, in a more, you know, less exciting kind of a church and didn't really address the issues that I was trying to address. And, and they were going on and on and on about how exciting they were, you know, how exciting Renaissance is and how glad they were to be here. And they stopped right in the middle and they said, you know, my kid really likes coming to church here. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, of course it's okay. You know, but again, if you grew up in a situation where the goal seemed to be to embalm kids rather than, you know, excite them, then maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe you just don't think it's part of the religious experience to actually have a smile on your kid's face as they walk up the stairs and think about going to the class that they'll be going to. Another family uh, was telling me just recently that uh, they come to church faithfully, they come to Renaissance faithfully every Sunday morning because their kids won't let them stay home. You know, it's like, mom, dad, you got to get up. We got to go to Renaissance. You know, don't be a sluggard. Don't sleep in, you know. And, uh, and that's the way that it works. And that's the way that it is in their family. And that's why we have the second floor decked out the way it is, you know, so that the kids will want to come and find out more about who God is and how they can have a relationship with him. That's why we serve you know, good coffee. That's why uh, we, we use uh, clips from, from movies and videos uh, that you might have seen. That's why we'll use songs from time to time that you've heard of, that you've got on your iPod, that you play in your car, you know, and on and on and on. We live in a society and we live in a culture that, well, it may not be a Judeo-Christian society and Judeo-Christian culture. It's asking spiritual questions. It's dealing with spiritual issues. It's looking for answers for how do we live our lives in this mixed up and and broken and, and sometimes confusing world. And we as a church want to address those issues. We want to provide some answers to the questions that people are asking. Think about the themes in the movies that we watch and the music that we listen to and the TV shows you know, that, that uh, we see from, from time to time. Relationships, love, sex, compassion and mercy, spirituality, eternity and the supernatural, honesty and authenticity, purpose and meaning, anger, bitterness, revenge, justice, redemption. You know, as I was thinking about these themes and, and many others, I realized just about every one of those themes comes up in this movie Eclipse. I mean, a movie that is targeted at 10 to 15-year-old girls deals with all of those issues. And if a movie that's targeting tweens deals with those issues, what about the more sophisticated movies that we're going to want to go and see? Again, dealing with all those issues because those are the issues that are coming up in our lives on a day-to-day basis. And at some level... The movies and music that we see and listen to reflect the culture in which we live. And at another very real level, they shape the culture you know, in, w- in which we live. In our society, more people get their understanding of, of who God is and what's he like and how we have a relationship with him 
more people get their understanding of those things, of spirituality, from movies and, and music and books and TV and, and you know, actors and politicians than get them from uh, pastors and priests and other clergy people and, and the Bible. I mean, that's where we learn our spirituality is from, from our culture. When I was growing up, and I think probably it's true for a lot of you, Billy Graham was arguably the most influential spiritual leader in the United States. And today, uh, that title probably has to go to Oprah, you know? I mean, and I'm not trying to diss Oprah or anything, but look at the contrast, you know, between Billy Graham and Oprah, uh, Dr. Phil, you know? Rush Limbaugh, believe it or not, is speaking into the spiritual lives of millions of people. Our politicians, our actors, our sports figures, you know, all of these people that we read about, that we see on TV, you know, wherever we run into them, these are the people who are influencing us and and shaping our thinking about who God is and how to have a relationship with him and how to deal with all these issues from compassion and mercy and, you know, purpose and meaning and bitterness and all these issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And that's why here at Renaissance, you know, we, we show clips from movies. We refer to, you know... A contemporary culture will play music by U2 and, and Queen and the Beatles and Coldplay and, you know, and, and on and on and on. Because that's, that's what we're steeped in, you know, as, as a people here. Uh, Thursday nights, uh, we often have a discussion that's uh, in our spiritual formation groups on Thursday nights. We often have a discussion that's based around readings from contemporary and, and maybe not so contemporary literature. Uh, recently, we read an article by Shirley MacLaine, you know, who is extraordinarily spiritual, but, but is anything but uh, within the Judeo-Christian tradition. And we talked about her and her philosophy and her spirituality and how, how we as followers of Christ interact with that and consider that and the answers that, that the Bible gives. Uh, we looked at a section from Les Miserables and uh, talked about that and some of the themes uh, that were going on there. We've done readings from Time Magazine and, you know, on and on and on. We begin with where our culture is, but we don't stop there. We don't take our cues from the culture. We, we get the ideas and the issues there, and then we, we move on from there and use that as a springboard to look at the Bible and look what God says and his answers, his thoughts, his responses to, to, to these issues and how a relationship with him can make a difference in our lives on a day-to-day basis. Our, our culture raises great questions, but the answers, I believe, ultimately need to come from God and as he's revealed himself to us uh, in the Bible. The Apostle Paul was a leader in the early church, in the first century uh, Christianity. He was one of the key leaders. And he traveled really all over the known world at that point. And he's engaging people where they were in the culture of their day, talking about the issues that they were dealing with in their day-to-day lives and helping them to see how having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ could uh, bring them the fulfillment and the joy and the peace and the solutions uh, to the questions that they were asking and uh, needing answers to. And I want to take a look in Acts chapter 17 at a, at a narrative that, that uh, talks about Paul's interaction with some folks in the city of Athens. 
Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Let me just stop there for a real quick second. So he starts off in the synagogue, which is with the Jewish folks there. And uh, earlier in the chapter, it talks about how he used their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what we might call the Old Testament. He began where they were, which was with their Bible, and he went from there to talk about uh, the resurrected Jesus. When he's in the marketplace with the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, he takes a very different approach, but interestingly ends up at the same place. Uh, verse, uh, verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And, and the Areopagus was the uh, council of the religious and um, cultural and ethical leaders of the day. So these are the intellectuals, the leaders of the people. They took him to a meeting of this council of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So you got this picture. When he's with the Jews, he's going to be dealing with Jewish issues. When he's with the non-Jews, he's going to be dealing with the issues that they're dealing with and starting with their culture. We'll pick it up in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You see, what, what Paul did there is he entered into their world. He entered into their culture. He looked for a cultural connection, for a, a springboard from which he could talk about God, and he found it in their polytheistic society. Remember, Judaism and Christianity are monotheistic, only one God. Uh, but this was a polytheistic society. They had all sorts of gods, God for every different you know, sort of situation they might be in. And he looked and found where they were hedging their bets. You know, they worshipped all these different gods, and just in case we've got an altar to an unknown God, and, says that, and Paul says, that's it. That's the one. That's the God that I'm talking about. The one that you don't know about, let me tell you about him. And he goes on and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, verse 24, uh, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and they inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. He's saying, you're worshiping all these different gods. I'm talking to you about the big dog God, the one that created everything. This is the unknown God that you're talking about and I want you to know about him. God did this, verse 27, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You catch that in verse 28? He's quoting from one of their poets. 
It's kind of like he's quoting from, you know, Bono or Coldplay or, you know, Brad Pitt or whoever it's going to be. The, the, the 21st century musician is the equivalent of the first century poet. And Paul quotes a first century poet named Aratus uh, to say, we are his offspring. And he uses that, Paul uses that as a springboard to get into to, uh, some truth about who God really is. And just a quick uh, aside there, Christians often get a little bent out of shape at this passage because they say, what is the Apostle Paul doing, quoting a pagan poet, you know, a pagan philosopher, and using it as truth? Well, it's true. The Bible makes it very clear. We are God's children. And Paul finds that in their culture and says, hey, we can leverage that. It's the same sort of thing that we do when we, um, when we did Bohemian Rhapsody, a few years ago, a couple years ago, we did the song Bohemian Rhapsody. And there's a video of that when we did that here at Renaissance. There's a video of it here on uh, YouTube. And if you go and you scroll down through the comments, you'll see a number of people who are a little bit upset about that. And they say, what is a church doing Bohemian Rhapsody? You know, it's a song about despair and despondency and somebody who killed somebody. And don't they know that Freddie Mercury died of AIDS? And, you know, there's a line in there about, you know, the devil has demons set aside for me, you know, and, and this sort of thing. And they're getting all upset about it. And they're saying, that, those topics don't belong in church. I'd kind of like to flip it around and say, the question's not really, what, why are we talking about that in church? The question is, why isn't everybody talking about those issues in church? Because those are the issues that we face. You know, the, Rich took that song about despair and despondency and hopelessness and he showed how in the Bible God says we don't have to be hopeless because there is hope in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing we've done is unforgivable. None of us is so far from God that he can't reach out and rescue us and give us a meaningful relationship with him. And so that's why, you know, we do songs like Bohemian Rhapsody and others uh, at, at Renaissance. Okay, so let me, let me just pick up here then in verse 29. Paul continues, he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. You notice what Paul's doing. They worshipped stone and gold and silver, you know, man-made images. And he says, your own poet says we are his offspring. And if we're his offspring as flesh and blood and spiritual beings, why do you think that God is a rock, you know? If you're his child, are you the child of a rock or a piece of gold or a piece of wood that's been carved? No, you know, you're a spiritual being and so is God and I want to tell you what God is like. So he's taking their own culture and rather than whacking them over the head with sort of hellfire and damnation, well, he's not pulling any punches. He's, he's using their culture to make a point and to segue or to springboard into some biblical truth. And he says in verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and that's Jesus. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. 
And among them was uh, Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You see, what Paul did is, is he met them where they were, and he found points of connection, uh, points of contact within their culture, and then he took them ultimately to the resurrected Jesus. Our culture, the, the culture in which we live, is asking questions, and it's, it's, it's giving answers. And we see it in our movies, we see it in our TV shows, we hear it in our music, we find it in the, in the books that we read and the conversations uh, that we have. And God addresses every one of those themes and every one of those issues. And he's got the ultimate answers to those questions. So whether it's despair and despondency in Bohemian Rhapsody or uh, compassion and love in the, the movie A Blind Side, which is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, just a really, I, I really enjoyed that movie. Um, God gives us his perspective on these issues and how we can live in light of them, have a relationship with him and find meaning and fulfillment uh, in that relationship with him through Jesus Christ. I love the way that the 17th century mathematician and scientist and uh, philosopher, French, French uh, scientist and philosopher, Pascal puts it. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries to fill in vain with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help that he can't find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. You know, we're looking for something. Our society, our culture is, is looking for something. We're, we're, we're longing for answers. We know that something is missing. And we look for it in movies, in music, in, in sports, in uh, different diversions. We look for it in all sorts of places. And sometimes we find a piece. We find a little bit of an answer. But as Pascal's saying, it's just, it's, it's just a, a fleeting image of what used to be there. And ultimately, those questions and those issues can only find their true fulfillment, their, their real ultimate answers in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because he's created us for a relationship with him and that's where we find the answers to our questions. That's where we find the meaning for our lives. That's where we find the fulfillment that we're looking for in a growing relationship with the infinite God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. This past week, I was uh, reading a book by a pastor out in the Midwest uh, named Tim Stevens, and uh, he pastors a church that is uh, philosophically very like Renaissance. It looks somewhat different because it's the Midwest and we're the Northeast, but the underlying uh, principles, the underlying ways in which they think, the underlying ways in which they want to engage their culture are very similar to what we want to do here at Renaissance. And he had a great quote here that I want to read to you. Uh, Tim Stevens says, I want to leverage the culture so that you can have a safe place to explore your faith, where you can hide until you're ready to be seen, where you'll be challenged but not pushed, where you'll be loved but not smothered, 
where you can start where you are rather than where someone thinks you should be, where you can be in relationship with others without having to make a commitment, where you can ask heretical questions and get authentic answers. I love that. We want to provide here at Renaissance a, a safe place where people, wherever they are, wherever you guys are, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, where we can enter into a growing relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And like the Apostle Paul, we start where we are, day to day, in our culture, in our society, in our music, in our movies, in our books, in our TV shows. We start there and we move forward from there. And ultimately, we end up at the God who created us and who loves us and who's the only one who can perfectly meet our needs because he designed us with a need for him and he's the one who can fulfill that need that he placed within us. I want to ask uh, Sophia and the band uh, to come on up now and they're going to sing one last song for us that really captures the fulfillment that we can find in a relationship with God. And I think that you'll appreciate the, the, the song. And as they're coming up, let me encourage you, wherever you are in your uh, spiritual journey, let me encourage you to uh, maybe this week, start reading one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Those are the first four books of the uh, New Testament. And ask yourself, what themes do I see addressed here? How does Jesus address the themes and the issues and the topics that come up in the music I listen to and the movies that I watch? How does Jesus address those both by what he says, but also by how he lives his life? And ask yourself, how would having a deeper uh, relationship with him help me to know how to live in light of the way uh, the world is around me? I think you'll find it to be a fruitful exercise. Father, I thank you uh, that you're a God who reaches into our culture, who reaches into our society and meets us where we are. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes uh, to see more clearly who you are, what incredible love you have for us, and give us an overwhelming desire uh, for a relationship with you. As we're asking questions, as we're wrestling with issues, may we seek and find the answers and fulfillment in a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for your forgiveness, and for your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.